the other thing I say in, in Out of Line after, if you don't have community, art will break your heart, is your heart will be broken anyway, eventually, but it's better with community. You'll find a way to heal with community. Now, I don't mean for that to be uh, pessimistic. I just mean life breaks your heart, right? Art breaks your heart. Trafficking with, with beauty and danger breaks your heart. Uh, you will recover faster and, uh, and you won't die of heartbreak if you have community. You're listening to Parallel Careers, where writers who also teach share the big ideas and practical tips that they take into the classroom. My name is Tannis McDonald. I'm a writer of poetry and creative nonfiction, mostly the personal essay. I'm also a scholar. I'm a professor at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario. And I'm originally from Winnipeg, Manitoba, but I've been living in Ontario and in the Waterloo region for about 16 years. I think poetry attracts uh, people who in some ways want a break from the logic that sometimes dominates prose. I say sometimes, because of course there's plenty of strange prose out there as well. But when I say that the uh, poetry attracts people with its strangeness, one of the things I find very interesting in poetry is how two disparate ideas can sit alongside each other. And I think they sit alongside each other in daily life all the time, but we train ourselves, A, not to see them, B, to say they're contradictory so they can't exist, when everyone's life is a lived contradiction, quite frankly, right? But poems often strive to have those two things exist in the same space and talk about the kind of resistance to having them be in the same space or a kind of welcoming where the space that they sit in is meant to be, except we've been resisting looking at it all all this time. So my last poetry book is called Mobile. And in some ways, it's modeled on Dennis Lee's civil elegies. And when I say it's modeled on, I don't do the same work as Lee does in that classic text. But his civil elegies got me thinking about a female experience of the city. And the more I looked around, the more I could see that actually a lot of women writers were writing about a female experience uh, of the city. And I really wanted to add my voice to that. When I moved to Toronto when I was 21, I knew no one. I had no relatives here. And I, I was really sort of striking out on this kind of new ground. And I had to learn everything from, from the ground up. That was also an introduction to the fact that I, I came from a working class background because I didn't quite realize it until I was in Toronto. And, and I met lots of people who volunteered that that was my background. They told me and I went, oh, um, yes, yes, I guess so. Right. So mobile is a, a kind of exploration of what it's like to be uh, young and female in a city and to start to experience its delights and its dangers. The Blue Stockings opening lecture. There is no extra credit for the truth. No points will be deducted for lying. Rough words are allowed, but first pay attention to their shine. Lateness is allowed because I've been that girl with the problem. Lateness is not encouraged because same. I know it is shocking to be read after so much knocking. I will ask you to work with metaphor. Do not tear up the pea patch. Pain is allowed, but it's not a currency. 
It is addicting to be read. I will write the prescription, but don't make me your pusher. Let it be said, you may call me by name after you've read two of my books. You may think this is elitist. Please discuss at length with the person sitting next to you. I love it when you turn to each other and speak. I will be grinning as you talk. Do not be alarmed. These are only my teeth. This is only happiness. So there are three sections to mobile. The first one is the young woman in the city with not much money. The second bit is I decided that uh, I needed to write from the perspective of an older woman and a woman with a different kind of experience. And so I stayed with this idea of class and I worked with the trope of the older woman, often uh, older sort of bag woman, often uh, known as Crazy Jane, right? Yeats writes about her as Crazy Jane and uh, the 19th century painter Richard Dodd has a, a picture of that he calls Crazy Jane. And a number of sort of canonical writers have worked with this idea of a homeless um, mad woman. And I use mad woman in, in quotations there that, that she is both a kind of wise woman and she lives outside the bounds of, of polite society. So I have my, um, my Jane figure that I also kind of mashed up with the urbanist Jane Jacobs. And I thought, what if crazy Jane was Jane Jacobs? That'd be cool, right? <laughs> and in the end, of course, she's not Yeats's uh, crazy Jane. She's not Jane Jacobs, but she is a kind of amalgam of those kinds of ideas. So she is living rough on the streets and She's trying to leave capitalism and colonialism behind her and, of course, is struggling to do so because it's embedded in all of the systems that, that we live in. You know, in the classroom, I know that uh, sometimes uh, beginner writers are looking for work they can relate to, work that seems to mirror or speak to their kinds of circumstances. And I think that's good. Everyone needs um, those voices around them. But I also tell them that, you know, as they study, it's okay to write back to people who do not satisfy you to say, hey, W.B. Yeats, I don't know about you writing about this old woman over and over again and using her as a kind of um, aph aphorism machine. That's a woman with blood and bone and circumstance, and you're using her as an opportunity to put a wisdom, your wisdom in her mouth. And so it's okay, I think, to say, hey, this image that has existed in the canon for <laughs> centuries, come over here and I'm going to treat you more nicely. I'm going to, I am going to do something, something different with this. My new book, uh, Straggle, Adventures in Walking Well Female, is coming out in the, the spring of 2022. And in some ways, in my head, these are parallel books. So on the surface, I'm still, I'm still with walking. I'm still with walking and thinking about how that affects the body, questions of mobility. I have degenerating disc disease and also very, very bad sciatica. And so walking is a, a big part of my life because sometimes it really, really hurts and sometimes it relieves the pain. So I've got a, a kind of um, dual relationship with this idea of walking. So we see some of that as a, a, a kind of carryover from, from mobile, particularly looking at, uh, at the aging female body and uh, what it takes 
to to move under your own locomotion sometimes well and sometimes not so well, right? Which is one reason why um, I I've called the book Straggle because I wanted a word for walking that wasn't about achievement, that wasn't about covering the miles, crushing the miles. It wasn't about working out or working up a sweat. It's also not so much about wandering, but thinking what happens again when your walking isn't isn't perfect, where you have to accommodate um, ways of uh, ways of walking that um, maybe people don't want to look at or don't want to don't want to talk about. And so I say that Straggle is a book about what happens when someone like me puts on their her shoes. Walk this way, says Steve Tyler. Walk this way said my grade eight geography teacher. He asked us to push our desks aside to create a wide aisle down the middle of the room, and he showed us how to walk. He described and then demonstrated how we should walk, young men and then young women. It's hard for me to recall what he prescribed for the boys as that advice was completely overshadowed by his demonstration of how women walk. He didn't mince, he didn't simper, he didn't prance or giggle. He started at one end of the room and glided across the room like old Hollywood glamour. He moved like Harlow through Monte Carlo. He attributed to us not only the grace and coordination that none of us had at 13, but also the breasts and hips most of us hadn't grown yet. He instructed us then to put the desk back and he never referred to it again. From our older siblings, we learned that he taught this lesson every year. This was an exercise in gender prescription, no question, but I am torn between thinking of the demonstration with its seriousness, its oddness, and its annual repetition, and thinking about its legacy. 13-year-olds are inundated with people telling them what to do, admonitions against some behaviors, earnest exhortations in favor of others, I am struck that the geography teacher didn't mock us or parody us or shout directions at us. It seems as though he took the problems of our bodies seriously and he offered a serious answer. No doubt his answer was limited in gender, in style, in aspect, but it was an answer offered more thoughtfully than most answers to impossible questions. The question he tried to answer was not, how do I walk? But what we wanted to know but could not ask, how can I be in the world? And what happens if my body doesn't fit in the world? His answer may have been, walk this way because it will give you a way to fly under the radar. Walk this way until you can get away from your parents in this small prairie city. Walk this way as a performance. Walk this way as a way to wear a mask that will protect you until it's safe to walk any damn way you please. He put his own body on the line to answer what we could not and would never ask. Giving feedback in a course or even in a, in a workshop is, I think, really important because people should know the power of being read. They should know the power that if they write something down on a piece of paper, someone's going to read it and take it seriously and ask what they want to do with it and what kind of effect they want that to have. And I think in some ways it's a, it's every writer's dream and it's every writer's fear, <laughs> right? 
So a couple of years ago uh, in my uh, poetry course, I could see some people having some trouble with revision strategies that they would revise, but just, you know, a line or a couple of words. And I thought, you know, many of you are holding yourselves back from, from taking a leap into um, a poem that was still in the first draft stage and people were thinking of it as finished or almost finished. And so I thought, I think the only way to do this is to give people a real example of uh, what it can be like. And I also thought it's, it's, I think it's a good idea when you uh, instruct other writers is to have them read some of your own writing and to be vulnerable the way they are vulnerable with each other and with me and showing, showing new work. So I knew the only way I could do this was to start from scratch, show them that my first drafts are as crappy as anybody's. So over the break, I had 10 days to do this. I drafted something the very first morning. I came back to it that afternoon, did a redraft. I came back three days later, I drafted again. And then I have a, an online writing group. And I said to them, could you take the, these and mark them up? Because I also wanted them to see me getting feedback from people who knew my writing. And also I wanted them to see that if you ask 10 people for feedback, five people are going to say, I love this line. And the other five are going to say, get rid of this line. And then it's up to me as the writer to make that determination. And then I took all of this. I showed them all the drafts. I showed them all the feedback. And then I said to them, but this feedback isn't necessarily right. What do you think? And I thought, you know, that was definitely in some ways a, a kind of a humbling process and I also thought it's fair. If I had been writing all over their poems, they should get a chance to write all over mine. And some people did say, I hate this image. Don't use it. <laughs> right? This is too wordy. And they said the things to me <laughs> that I had been saying. <laughs> and so I have to say that that was, you know, that was gold. That was just gold seeing, uh, seeing people do that. And also seeing people wrote me very thoughtful feedback as well. This is for you. This is for you sitting in the back of your high school class or maybe in the front, bored and barely passing or passing without trying and wondering why it all seems so formulaic. This is for you in the library, reading anything and everything you can get your hands on, not because you are so fascinated, though you might be sometimes but because you never know what book might give you that sliver of light, the key to getting out of this place, this school, this set of expectations. This is for you who goes to church or temple or gudwara at your parents' insistence and gets lost for a moment or two in the rhythm of the words or music or prayers or readings or the harmonies of hymns that you haven't believed in for years, but still they sound like leaving, like art that gets made somewhere far away from here. This is for you, working that job you wanted, or that job you needed to pay the bills, still thinking about the key to getting out of this place, but you don't want out. You only want more of what you get when you pick up a pen or a paintbrush or a sander, here, in this place. I am thinking of you making art in unlikely and sometimes stringent circumstances, writing on your lunch hour, or taking photos with your phone, 
or curating books and films and paintings to declare what you love, or saving old, beautiful things from the landfill, or kerning the lettering on an event poster. Special shout out to those of you who have to listen to people all day telling you that it's not art, that it's banal, that it's more useless information, that the care you take and attention you give will add up to nothing. I will tell you this one thing in hope that it will sustain you. You know what needs doing. My 2018 book, Out of Line, Daring to Be an Artist Outside the Big City, started out because uh, I wanted to write for beginner writers, my students and everyone else who was interested in the book, about the writing life. The writing life that isn't especially glamorous uh, and that takes place outside a big metropolitan city. Now, I live in Waterloo and it's a city, a medium-sized or a small city, but it has the kind of opportunities and uh, arts policies that you get in a small city. It is not uh, an exciting reign of opportunity like you might be getting in Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver. Nothing against any of those cities, but a lot of writers don't live in those cities. And they still write and they still make art. And it's a very special problem. It was more of a problem uh, before we had Zoom and Zoom readings became popular. But I also note that as uh, people are longing to go back to in-person readings, I'm a little reluctant, I think, but, but then I'll go back to my very small audiences. What about the, the big national audience that I can get in, a, in an online reading? So Out of Line is a book for people who are making art and making a living outside the big city, people who aren't getting uh, huge grants people who probably like very much where they live and don't or can't move to that big metropolis and so are living out the art-making dream without the kinds of trappings that we often associate with the art-making dream. Living in a big artist studio, having lunch with your publisher every, you know, once a month. Like these kinds of things that are both real and kinds of big city cliches about, uh, about making art. When I think of success as a writer, I mean, it's very easy to look at money and the ability to uh, win awards as success. But I think for most working writers, success is writing more days a week than not, being published sometimes in a small publication, to have one editor say, yes, I know people will want to read this, so it's going to go in my magazine. We've chosen your piece out of the 3,000 that we got this year. So that is success. That is a, a kind of way to keep going. So I think success is whatever keeps you happy in your art-making life. Um, I remember thinking if I got a book published, that would be it. I could die happy because my book was published. And then my book was published, and I didn't feel like dying happy. I felt happy that the book was out, but then I, I saw the flaws in the book, and I thought, hmm, I can do better. I can do more. I'm ready to write another book. And I did that. So when I talk to students about that, I say, you know, what you will count as a success is going to change. 
and you need to give yourself time to to get better at what you do and that takes that takes a long time You've been listening to Parallel Careers, which is produced by myself, Claire Tayson, in partnership with the New Quarterly Literary Magazine. Aaron McIndoe Sproul is our technical producer and story editor. Financial and in-kind support was provided by the Region of Waterloo Arts Fund, St. Jerome's University, and the Government of Canada. The music you heard on this episode was composed by Amadeo Ventura. You can hear more of his music at amadeoventura.weebly.com. Visit tnq.ca slash parallel for more information on Tannis' work, including her essay collection, Straggle, Adventures in Walking While Female. There you can also listen to outtakes from this episode and check out more teaching and writing tips. Thanks for listening.